Hey girl, hey. Another episode of the Game Dev Show. This is Kaylee Hurst. I am here with Luke Greenaway. Hey. This week as every week, my co-host. <laughs> How you doing, Luke? Yeah, I'm good. Sorry for that impromptu. Hey. Um... Yeah, well, I said hey girl, hey. You had to say something back. <laughs> it was a blank space, so I thought I'd... Uh... I thought I'd yeah. say something. Um, Honestly, I, I feel like if someone says, hey, girl, hey, and you don't say, hey, back, it's like leaving someone hanging on a high five. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I thought so you, you did the right thing. Yeah, I thought you were speaking to yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was. I don't know. I just needed that pep talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, hey. Um, hey. I'm excited. Uh, this week's episode was great. Uh, we had Miguel Corti, senior production manager at Capcom Japan for yeah. globalization, localization. Good. Well, He's been at Capcom for a lifetime though. Like honestly, maybe was born there, right? Yeah, he's he likes Japan. He's been well, he's been at Capcom yeah. Japan for 13 years, but I think he's been in Japan for 20 nearly. Great though. Do you know what I really enjoyed listening to how Capcom look after their employees and yeah. they, their unique approach to localization. Well not unique, but it's just refined it sounds so refined progressive um, yeah great that's a great word yeah progressive very progressive i'm good <laughs> at words <laughs> i'm not actually what did you like what was your favorite part of the episode you know <laughs> it's funny so not just this episode but basically every episode we've done my favorite part is like the color that we get around who these people are honestly it's less about their journey in the games industry. And when I find out these like cool, interesting stories about who they are outside of that. So with Miguel, I loved, I loved hearing about his Captain Morgan days. Yeah. Um, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's been, he's a traveled man. Uh, he's so. man. Lots of good stories. So I think we should jump into it. Let's you ready? It. Yes, ma'am. All right. Miguel, what did your parents think about you? working in video games. And how did that come about? What did you study? Did you study things knowing that you wanted to be in video games? I guess to put it, the cards on the table. I, I just turned 44 recently. So that gives you an idea of my generation. So I grew up on Nintendo. Well, actually, Atari and in television before I had a Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, games were something I grew up with, but it was never something. I mean, if you had asked any kid, do you want to make video games they would have said yeah but we had no idea what that even entailed so i never set down a career path to actually study for making games i went into college originally thinking about uh, majoring in physics of all things but i realized well if you're not going to be einstein (laughs) (laughs) really there's not a i don't know maybe there are more i never looked into it but i didn't really think like it was a a serious profession to pursue. Uh, mm. Knowing what I know now, I realize majors probably don't have the impact on your future career. Everyone thinks they do, but I didn't know better then. So I decided to change it, of all things, to English because I enjoyed writing. So I thought I'll study English. Again, I don't know if that was a better choice in terms of career paths. Most of the other people in the major with me were on the education track as well. So they were intending to pursue some form of education degree with English. But at my school, they had a program. They were trying to make it as liberal arts as possible. So they made sure you had a bunch of general ed requirements. Part of those requirements was studying a language. 
uh, you had to take three semesters at my school of a foreign language. And uh, I had taken Spanish up until that point. My father's from uh, Venezuela, so I could use him as a resource in junior high and high school Spanish, which was good. So I just kind of continued that in college. I said, well, I've come this far. I'll just go with what I know. It was actually on my first day of college. It was in the building where all the language courses are. Just talking to people in front of the classroom because you're a freshman and you're nervous and you're worried if you're in the right place and you ask people standing around if they're in waiting to go to the same class as you. And there was a, another lady there and I asked her if she was waiting for Spanish. She said, no, I'm waiting for the Japanese class. Like, oh, wow, they offer a Japanese class this year. And so that got me interested. I'm like, I think I'll try to take that. But as chance would have it, they had a special course, an eight-week special class for freshmen to kind of get them acclimated to college life. It was kind of like you could, everyone gets assigned a teacher, like a group of 20 kids, and we're assigned one of the professors, and we can consult with them on different things. It's not graded or anything. And uh, she was into studying abroad, and she brought in uh, the gentleman who was head of the studies abroad department. And he was explaining how it worked and all the different places you could study abroad. And almost everyone in the class was, of course, interested in studying in the UK because <laughs> the language <laughs> is not an issue, right? Yeah. And then uh, by a chance would have it, they said they had a Japanese program with a university in Japan. And uh, I said, that sounds interesting. That sounds like a goal I could work toward which something I never had when I was taking Spanish, aside from maybe you know, saying something to my father or some of my relatives, there was never a, a true goal in learning the language. And so that kind of provided the impetus for me to really study Japanese and give me something to work toward. That's amazing. How long did it take you? Are you fluent in Japanese now? How long did it take you to learn Japanese? I know it's obviously an incredibly complex language. <laughs> <so>, <laughs> Yeah, I, that is a good question. So well, I had three semesters in college and then a year of study abroad. And only the Japanese language classes were in Japanese, but they were every day. So that was pretty good. And then when I moved back to Japan, I could have conversations and stuff, but I wouldn't have considered myself fluent. I could read most things, but I couldn't get through a newspaper without running to a dictionary every other word. But they have a, a Japanese proficiency test that a lot of people take. And I thought, oh, I'll study for that as a goal to have something to you know, put on the resume should I return to the States. At that time, it was four different levels. So I studied for the second level, passed. And then the year after that, I took uh, level one and passed that. And even with that, there was still a lot of Japanese I didn't know. But you're good enough to, quote unquote, work at a company once you pass level one. So I passed that. But it, it took a few years after that before I felt fluent. Wow. So where, where was all this? You grew up in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I'm originally from New Jersey. Oh, okay, cool. Do you come back often? Like when was the last time you came back to the U.S.? Last time I came back was last year. When was that? May. End of April, beginning of May. I was in the States at the beginning of 2020 for okay. uh, attending a motion capture shoot for one of our new projects. So just before the pandemic shut everything down. So that was my last trip to the States and my last business trip, as it were. 
So then you, you went to Japan to study and did you just stay or did you, you studied, you found work? Like, how did that happen? One thing good about being in Japan at that time, this was the late 90s. So learning English as a second language was kind of a big thing here. There's a whole cottage industry of it. I'm sure you've probably heard of Berlitz. I don't know how big they still are, but I remember every now and then you'd be in a shopping mall in the States and they would have like a little office where you could learn a foreign language. Well, in Japan, they have English conversation schools almost everywhere at all the major stations and whatnot. And so it's not really like a vocational school. There's no real degree you would get or any qualification per se, but it's kind of just like a transactional teaching program where students can drop in, get a lesson and go about their day. So I knew there was always opportunities if you were a native English speaker to get a job like that. So after the year of exchange, I went back, finished up school in the States and then after I graduated, within a couple months, I was back in Japan looking for a job because I knew I could come here on a tourist visa, find a job. And then it was more difficult back in the day. I think nowadays you could stay in Japan and transfer from a tourist visa to a working visa. But back in the day, you had to leave the country for at least a period of 24 hours. And you had to get the visa from a consulate or embassy outside of the country. So most people just hopped on a plane or a ferry to South Korea because it was the closest and the cheapest. That's interesting. Uh, you just do done. your like long weekend in South Korea and then come back and you got your visa? Pretty much three days. Oh. And actually uh, the company I applied for at the time, they even gave me, was it like $300 or so for the plane ticket, which I think covered the plane ticket and a little bit. So that was a, a nice little trip before uh, starting work. <laughs> And then you've been in Japan for how long now? Oh, <laughs> that number gets uh, scarier every time I say it. So <laughs> I, I came back in 1990, August 98. So that would make it 22 years uh, next month. Wow. God, I feel like I could spend a whole podcast just talking to you about what the experience of living in Japan is. But probably Luke would get mad at me. I actually wanted to know about Captain Morgan. I know this isn't even video game related, but it says <laughs> you've got four years at Captain Morgan, and then it just says Captain Morgan as your job role as well. So were you the Captain Morgan? I mean, <laughs> okay, that's a tale. <laughs> so uh, you have to realize the ethnic makeup of the population of Japan is primarily Japanese nationals. And I forget what the statistics are, at least 98% or more are Japanese, right? So there are opportunities for non-Japanese residents in certain areas, especially like modeling or something like that. There are certain areas in Osaka, you, you see a group of people like a group of attractive men or women walking together you know, they're probably a group of models from some agency that were brought over for a stint in Japan. So uh, the company that was representing Captain Morgan in Japan was trying to uh, popularize the drink and uh, distribute it and get it popular with especially young people who go to clubs and bars and things like that. In Tokyo, they already had a successful program where they had a guy who was a DJ from Denmark, actually who was Captain Morgan in Tokyo. So I met the agency that was doing the Captain Morgan shtick in Osaka. And that was from a friend I knew 
who used to go to clubs and bars a lot. And he was friends with one of the DJs who was actually his real job was working for this local independent advertising agency that handles things like this. Their main bread and butter, from what I understood, was actually promoting local DJs and dancers and that type of thing, entertainers at different clubs and bars. So this was kind of just an extension of that work. And the way it was sold to me is like, oh, this guy wants you to just serve some drinks at a party and they'll pay you like $100 or something. Being a, a Westerner in Japan, I've heard of things like that. I've had situations where uh, I was invited to some event and they just wanted some non-Japanese people to sing a karaoke song. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've gotten things before where I had been on TV, like uh, reenactment videos for like things that happened. I was, I played Mozart of all things in like some reenactment <laughs> video that was a part of, you know, part of some variety show here. So, so you know, I've heard of crazy things like that, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't think anything of it. And then when I got there, the guy that wanted to see me, he was a representative from the company that was distributing Captain Morgan. And he asked me to audition as a pirate. I'm like, you mean <laughs> right is, here? I love this story so much. Like I was convinced that I needed to move to Japan before this. But the fact that you can just <laughs> walk into being Captain Morgan, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had no clue what it was. And he's like, be a pirate. So, I, I mean, this was uh, many years ago now, right? So I think uh, it was around the time after the Lord of the Rings movies came out. So I, I had to channel my inner Gimli and get that guttural, yes. Did you just jump right in? <laughs> well, you didn't even hesitate. You were like, yeah, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm the I'm, captain now. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And then, That's uh, awesome. They took me to Tokyo for a weekend to uh, watch their Tokyo captain do it and learn the tricks of the trade, as it were. <laughs> and uh, there was a whole costume and everything. And the worst part was just using uh, that stage glue to glue on the beard and the mustache yeah. every time. Oh, but okay. uh, aside from that, then we just walk around in downtown Osaka hit different bars or clubs and give out samples and stuff. (laughs) I think think Luke is on board with our podcast now, now that we know (laughs) part of it, he gets to be talking talking about you being Captain Morgan. God. And you you did that for four years. So you were like Captain Morgan for a while. I mean, right. It it wasn't every day thing. It wasn't my main bread and butter. (laughs) It was was like, I think, the one time I did it most might have been like four or five times in a month. And it was usually a Friday night or a Saturday night. Nice. And yeah. so, and a lot of places I went to, uh, you know, we were just allowed to stay so I could stay in the club. A lot of times I went with my friends and I just said, oh, I'm Captain Morgan for the thing tonight. These are my That's friends. Funny. And so I was happy because that was like the first time in my life I've ever been able to use I don't know if it'd be a connection or my position of authority or whatever to do something good for my friends. So they were all able to like get in free or at a discount into like (laughs) different clubs and stuff. And so I could hang out with my friends afterwards. So if your kids, by the time they're old enough, if they don't think you're cool for working in video games, then just tell them that you were the Captain Morgan for a time. (laughs) Yeah, you were the Captain Morgan. (laughs) I love it. I think it's amazing. Yeah, God, I've worked in a bar before uh, years ago. And yeah, I loved the night scene. 
Um, I'm too old for it now, but I don't know. So I've seen you. You, you're, um, you're in great shape. You're in great. If oh, thank have, you. When, when, people, <laughs> when people see you, like obviously Miguel, Gamescom, things like this, they'll see obviously what incredible shape you're in. But, like, but I definitely couldn't be Captain Morgan. Not now, anyway. Um, I think you could still do it. If I'm being honest. So if you ever <laughs> do want that that alternative career path, obviously. We'll call up Captain Morgan. We'll let him know you're still available. (laughs) It kind of leads us great into the next question. So tell us about how Capcom came about from from the Captain Morgan days. (laughs) Well, they both begin with Cap. What did happen was uh, I was working a different job at the time. I, I was writing textbooks for, again, for those types of conversation schools, English conversation schools, primarily focused on uh, kids' classes and uh, TOEIC textbooks. TOEIC is a test of English language that's uh, pretty popular in South Korea and Japan. So a lot of business people will take that study to take that test to get qualifications, you know, to either get a promotion or because uh, they have to get it because they're in a position where they have to travel on business a lot. It's quite a a well-known test here in Japan. So I was writing study guides and textbooks, things of that nature, doing translation work, teaching materials that the staff had designed in Japanese, and then they wanted to adapt them for teaching Japanese kids English. So I I would do translation on that and rewrite them and stuff. Uh, I was working with one of my coworkers at the time, and our contracts at that job were just yearly. So it wasn't guaranteed. They weren't really going to let us go, per se, but it wasn't completely a stable position. The contracts were yearly. And uh, he was married and he had a kid on the way and he was looking for something stable. And I read that Capcom had an opening for a translator. And I said, you should apply for that. He said, why don't you apply for that? You like games. I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm done with Japan, actually. Believe it or not, this was what, Jeez. like 2006 or so? Was it the Captain Morgan stint? Were you like, I've seen all of Japan that I need to see? I, I've seen all of Japan. I've drank every bottle of rum to drink. <laughs> I've seen every temple and shrine in Kyoto twice. You know, I think a lot of people who come to Japan don't always come with the intention of staying long term. It's just something that happens. And even when I came here originally after graduating, college i only intended to stay for a couple years my original intention at that point was to come here a couple years get better at the language and then go back to the states maybe go to grad school or something like that so yeah i never intended to stay longer it's just something always happened that kept me usually the job situation changed in some way i told him no you should apply for it i'm not sure if i'm even going to stay in japan he applied and he got in and then uh Six months later, he called me up and said, they're looking for another translator, so I've recommended you, so you have to apply now. Hmm. And I was thinking, oh, man, do I? Okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, th- this doesn't sound good. I don't know I've, if anyone listens to this. I'm sure there's people who dream of breaking into localization and working for a games company like Capcom, so I don't want to say that's a bad goal or anything. I think that's a, a semi-common way to get into localization is just like, yeah, there's two things I can do. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, I liked translation. I was doing it at my current job anyway. It was just not something, yeah, I, I didn't think it was possible. I, now there's a whole network. You can connect with people on social media and things like that. And back then there wasn't 
that huge network. So you needed kind of a connection to get in, I guess you could say at that point. But now you can make connections with people online and create this whole vast network before even applying for the job. But I, I had no idea if something like that even existed at the time that I applied. I was just looking, you, you've got a rare trait in that, especially in the video games industry, where you've once you've got the role at Capcom, you've only ever worked at Capcom within the video games industry. We see so many professionals from throughout the industry end up working at multiple companies, especially at the beginning of their career. But you've been at Capcom now for 13 years? That's correct. What is it that you like so much about Capcom? It's weird because I discussed that with some of my coworkers not too long ago. It's a lot of times where, you know, we go to GDC or XDS, you know, different events and such. And we meet the people we're familiar with, the friends we've made, the relationships we've built over the years. You meet those people every year. But it's funny, we meet them every year, but every, almost every year we meet them they're at a different company <laughs> and they might be doing a similar role, but they have a new business card. But for us, yeah, a lot of us have been at Capcom for a while. I, th I think we enjoy working with this company. It's a big company, but it's small enough that, especially in localization, we get to touch a lot of different projects. So there's always something new and challenging. We're involved in localization specifically. We're involved in almost all the titles that get released outside of Japan, with a few exceptions. And so we get to see all those titles. We're not just locked into one game. We get to work on all of them. And I think that keeps it exciting and fresh. And so I would say uh, you've probably heard stories of work conditions at different companies in Japan. And, uh, you know, I always joke, a lot of people visit Japan and they always say, oh, I want to write a book about Japan and how fun it is. But if you look at all the books written about working in Japan <laughs> by uh, non-Japanese people, no one ever writes how fun it is to work in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, a good reason for that. But I, I got to say, I think Capcom, uh, even compared to a lot of Japanese companies or even a lot of the gaming companies uh, around the world, treats its employees pretty fairly. It's a company that I can put my trust in and I, I feel confident in working with the people that I do. Uh, there are a lot of great creators there. It's fun seeing them in action and watching what they do. Yeah, I think uh, it would be hard to really summarize everything Yeah, what is course. good about Capcom, but I, I've had a lot of good experiences there. And, uh, you know, and as long as it remains challenging and there's interesting stuff to work on, I think uh, it's definitely a place I could see myself for a while. I think I saw you were as part of Resident Evil, didn't you get your face mapped? Uh, and yeah. you did some voice acting as well? Yeah, that's probably the best, uh, the closest connection to Captain Morgan we'll get. with uh, <laughs> Using your with Captain, Captain Morgan Mor skills. Yeah, the, the theatrical skills I, I learned on the job with Captain Morgan. Yeah, again, I think it's a very similar thing. Just by dint of being non-Japanese, when they want someone to scan for a reference. And as uh, Luca uh, so nicely complimented me, uh, I do exercise. So I have 
a nice physique, I guess you could say. So <laughs> they, they are very, always very eager to scan me anytime they need a muscular character or a soldier or a cop or something like that, that I'm the first one that gets called in to be scanned. God, I would enjoy that conversation where they're just like, hey, you work out, right? Can we body yeah. scan you? Yeah, pretty nice, much. Nice. I think uh, Resident Evil 2 was the first one where you get to see my full face and body. I, I'm the deputy in the beginning that Leon finds in the gas station and then gets immediately killed by a zombie. So uh, then you get to be a zombie, right? I get to be a zombie. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm going to check that out now. I can't believe that. There's a extra mode once you beat the game called Ghost Survivors. There's four different playable characters and I'm one of the playable characters. So uh, you can Do play you ever as play me. as yourself? <laughs> I did play as, as me. What yes. was that like? That would be fun. It, it's weird because, uh, yeah, all the people on my team, when they were working on the game, they, they would show me, oh, look, here's you. And then they would say, but it's not you because it's a different actor playing it. So the uh-huh. the facial expressions, while it's my face, the facial expressions are not ones I make. And his body movements are not the body movements I make. If you know me, as the people on my team do, they know that's not how I move or how I make faces. There's kind of that uh, disconnect between uh, what you see. Yeah, That's so weird. Is it, The character's name is Michael? Is that right? No, Daniel Cortini. Daniel so, Cortini. That's what I, I named was. him after my brother. And, oh, uh, okay. But the last name, because of... There's you know, a lot of story files in Resident Evil you pick up, like when you're in the game and it tells you like little, uh, you know, background info about things that happened before the game takes place or whatever. So we always put in our names or names of family members. So my last name, Cordy, has appeared a number of times in Resident Evil games, never as like a main character or anything, but enough times that it's incorporated in the lore. So uh, the dev team said, yeah, you can't use Cordy because you used uh, <laughs> that. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just change it to Cortini and I'll, I'll use my brother's name. So That's he, great. He was, yeah, he was pretty surprised when he, uh, when he played the game. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that you're basically a part of the Resident Evil lore. Um, yeah. if I, if I wasn't scared of scary games, I've only completed Resident Evil 4 because, uh, <laughs> they are so scary. I don't know why you'd ever want to be scared. I, I know there's a lot of people who want to be scared, but I just, I'm not one of those people. But I really want to go back now. I might go on the forums later and, uh, see, see what people are saying about the, uh, the courty, uh, yeah, lore I, I'm, in, I'm in the first trailer, the one we announced, uh, at E3 that one year. I remember the team was working hard on just that part of the game to get everything ready for the trailer. So a number of core members on the dev team know who I am, of course, but there, you know, there's hundreds of people on the dev team. So, you know, different artists or animators or programmers, they get on the elevator with me and they look at me and they're like, oh, it's you. (laughs) One (laughs) one guy's like, oh, yeah, I was animating a your neck getting ripped out. Oh, thanks. That too funny. <laughs> yeah, that's the type of fun thing you can have. Type of fun we have at uh, Capcom. It makes me wonder, when, when Luke was talking about being scared of scary games, that kind of leads me into something I wanted to ask you about localization, which is people talk about localization and they say it's about having an immersive experience. So you're playing a game and you don't get jarred out of the game by something that isn't culturally resonant. 
but I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and they said, no, localization is about emotion. So you have two people across the world from each other playing the same game and they feel the same emotion at the same time. I love that way of framing it, but then how do you translate emotion? Is that is that harder? Is that easier? Do you agree? Disagree? Uh, I, I don't disagree. I mean, uh, I spent a lot of time studying just straight up translation, ignoring yeah. game localization, you know, studying Japanese. And because of what I studied in college, I, I spend a lot of time looking at it, especially the way novels are translated and the different tricks they use. I remember one Japanese author, one of his books I read in English, one of the characters slips up and uh, he's putting on airs and trying to act more sophisticated than he is. But then in one scene, he lets his uh, mask slip and he reverts back to the local dialect of like the farm town he grew up in. And in the Japanese version of the book, he actually, the dialect changes because they can write that out. But in the translation, no matter what the translator came up with, it would always just be some weird approximation, right? It wouldn't have really worked. Which rustic dialect do you choose for a situation like that? So you just had, as part of the, the description, he slipped back into his rural dialect of his upbringing or something. It's just a description instead of trying to write the speech out. And when you're reading a novel, that's pretty much an elegant way of doing it. Yes, something is lost in translation, the, you know, the proverbial lost in translation there. But I think that's less jarring than trying to do some type of dialect like a Mark Twain novel or something, and it feels off or something, right? Or you're reading the book as an American, I'm reading this book in English and just assuming everyone has kind of American accents in my mind, accent I hear in my mind. And then this translator decides to go with some rural British accent that to me would be jarring and would take me out of the book. So I thought that translator found an elegant way of doing that. With games, I think a lot of what we do is that. And the difference being though, the games are about that emotional resonance, but it's the creator doesn't get to choose it as much is my feeling on games because they're an interactive medium, right? So everyone's experience with a game is different. You know, you might ha fighting a boss in that gives you a really hard time in the game. You invest more emotional energy into hating that boss and that boss character is like, he puts you through so much trouble to just beat it that that's all you think about when you think about that one game. And for someone else, like, oh, I beat that boss in five seconds and that boss didn't even make an impression on them. Whereas if you watch a movie and it's like the big fight with the bad guy that takes up the last 20 minutes of the movie, everyone gets that same experience. So games mm. provide a different experience. And yeah, so you're trying to, translate that for everyone so what you're trying to do is translate something designed by japanese people into well i'm primarily doing it in english but my team does it in all different languages right so we're trying to adapt that into something that would be understandable around the world and so how do you do that is the thing my personal philosophy is that 
the challenge from games should come from the game itself, from the design of the game, the way you figure out how to traverse over some land or beat a boss character or solve a puzzle or figure out which items to use or in what order to use those items. All the challenge from games should be there. The challenge should not be in accessing the game. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to jump over a lava pit in your living room just to turn on the console, right? So <laughs> the same would go for the UI and the experience there. So you want it to be as unobtrusive, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want people to be caught up in those details. You want them to be able to get into the experience. And so that they can decide what kind of emotional interaction they're going to have with the game. So you you want to try and make sure you're stepping out of the way and you're showing them the way in so they can have that. But it, it varies from game to game, you know, uh, something like Resident Evil, which we work on a lot of times it's set in America. So that offers uh, the, at least the English localization, a true advantage, right? We, we have to make it, as acceptable to an American audience as possible because they will know if something is off. And so we're working with the dev teams from the beginning. So it's not even localization. It's part of the dev process. We're advising them, giving feedback. They're asking us for advice. And so we help them pretty much with the design from the beginning. Something like Monster Hunter is kind of a, a, a pseudo fantasy style game. But it doesn't really follow a lot of the tropes and trappings of something like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones type. It's its own unique thing. So again, you can get away with doing certain things that you wouldn't be able to do in traditional fantasy. But because it's its own setting, then you don't have to worry about adapting a lot of it to an audience so that they can understand it because they're going to come to it with the expectation that, yeah, this is not Lord of the Rings. This is Monster Hunter. I expect it to do something Monster Hunter-y. Mm. So that gives you an advantage there. I mean, the real challenge, and I'm sorry to go on like this, is something more <laughs> like uh, like a Phoenix Wright, you know, the Ace Attorney games and such. You know, that's where you have to take the liberties if you want to approximate anything near the original experience yeah. of playing it in Japanese because there's puns and jokes you know, if we left the names all in Japanese, you'd lose one layer of jokes right there, one layer of puns, one layer of humor. And that wouldn't be fun for anyone at that point. So with that, you really have to take liberties and find, you know, something that works. Okay, they made this joke in Japanese with the character's name. That doesn't really work based on his personality. This will do this or this character. Yes, she likes to do this kind of speech affectation in Japanese. It doesn't really work in English. So we'll find something else to give her. And uh, that's the challenge. You know, we're trying to respect the intent. At the same time, we want to make sure that it can be understood intuitively by a non-Japanese audience. I think that's a good answer because it's sort of a nuanced answer of, well, you really can't pick what emotion people feel. Like you said, someone's going to think a boss is scary. Someone's going to think they're funny. Someone's going to just beat them and move on. Yeah. Yeah. And that requirement. There are things that we remove. Uh, I'll straight up say we do remove in localization because they're unique to Japanese culture. For example, a lot of times characters will say each other's names often in Japanese. And 
if I were to translate that as is. And that's actually something uh, we've had to train people not to do because it's a gimme. It's like when you're translating a lot of text and you come across the character's name, you're like, yes, that's a free one. I don't have to think. <laughs> but actually, that's not the way to go because we don't do that. When I'm we're talking to someone, you just talk to them, especially if they're next to you. You don't have to say their name unless you're trying to get their attention or in a situation like we are in right now, we can't see each other. So if I wanted to address one of you specifically, I'd have to say your name. But in Japanese, they just do it as a matter of course. In lieu of saying the word you, they'll use the person's name. So when uh, doing something like, uh, I remember when I worked on Resident Evil 5, one of the first games I translated, and the characters, Sheva and Chris, they just, in Japanese script, they just keep calling each other, Sheva, Chris, Sheva, Chris. <laughs> the editor i was working with he sat me down he's like yeah this isn't working for me i'm like yeah <laughs> you're right i'm like i was trying to be too true to the japanese source but then it didn't work in english anymore that's mm-hmm. and that's understanding the difference between okay japanese doesn't really use the word you so they're more likely to use the character's name and yeah. even a little bit further cultural i noticed that the Japanese writers would tend to use the names more because they're not Japanese characters. And I couldn't understand why, but I guess just because they weren't, the names weren't Japanese words themselves, they tended to just have them use the names more because in their mind, it added more flavor Mm. in the Japanese version. So that's something, yeah, we had to realize, yeah, that doesn't work in English. So we need to dial that back. I think the point as well with something like Monster Hunter, where Monster Hunter is a, you know, this world which has been created by Capcom, you can feel the Japanese culture throughout Monster Hunter, like with the cats oh, that follow you around. Sure. But I love for that sure. and the humor as well and the exaggeration mm-hmm. of like movements when you cook a good meal and you're getting your recipes. And I, for me and my son, when we play it together, like that character is very unique to that game, but actually it's also not entirely unique to Japanese titles as a whole. I think it's fascinating to hear how like that is left in the game, but actually the localization and because of that, the localization doesn't have to be done to the same, the same level of adjustment and culturalization doesn't have to be made. However, with other titles, which don't have this setting, which is fictional Phoenix, right? It's obviously fictional, but it's also, you're a lawyer. There are expectations within that world because it matches our reality a lot more. Oh, I was just going to say real quick. I think the thing uh, most localizers always fret over is how much do they localize? You know, no one wants to be responsible for the next, all your base are belong to us (laughs) at the same time. Like I asked myself, so, you know, resident evil, or you may know that resident evil in Japanese is called biohazard. Yeah. And so for the first game, which came out, what, 96 or so, I think. It's set in 98, but I think the game itself came out in 96 or 97. If there had been a Loke team at Capcom at that time, and I had been on that Loke team, and they said, we're releasing this game called Biohazard, can we do that in the States? And I would have said, no, because that sounds generic for starters. To them, it sounded cool. But as a, uh, an American, that's just a generic word. I've heard that in millions of comics and movies and games and TV shows already. Like it's doesn't stand out. And then also I 
my feeling would have been it's kind of a spoiler too because in the beginning of the first resident evil you don't know that scientists created this virus and they accidentally mm. unleashed it which created all the zombies so at the beginning you don't know if this is supernatural or what have you and so the term biohazard is kind of a dead giveaway that it's a man-made thing but after you have that reveal would biohazard have been more an appropriate title than resident evil yeah i always think what, what would i've come down on <laughs> yeah mega man is rock man right and then because it, it, it's built around two puns one is rock paper scissors which is the concept for beating the bosses in the game you have to get this one boss's power to defeat another boss's power right like rock paper scissors but then yeah. they also leaned into the rock and roll puns so you have the girl in the game her name is roll and such but because he's called mega man now there's no rock and roll like that so you that pun that joke is completely lost but would Rockman, a game called Rockman, where the character looks like a tin spaceman, <laughs> that, you know, if you say this game's called Rockman back in, you know, 1988 or whatever, you'd expect a game about maybe like a caveman or yeah. something made out of rocks. So you always wonder if you're going too far, if, like you said about Monster Hunter, the design sensibilities are very Japanese, and I think that's what helps it stand out on a crowded market, because it's not like American or European-made fantasy games. So how much do you push for them to change those things is always the key. I mean, one thing we did do in uh, Monster Hunter way back when is uh, when you complete a quest, you would get a red mark on the screen, which would be a stamp. Here in Japan, they use stamps in place of signatures, right? And they use red ink. And if you get a diploma from a school, it has a big red stamp on it, whereas our diplomas have a big gold seal on them. From a Japanese point of view, that big red seal is like the seal of approval. It's a good thing. Whereas from our perspective, red equals bad. You failed the test sort of thing. So the fact that it would say quest cleared in Japanese in red ink made it look like a negative when it popped up on the screen. And uh, one of our local directors, Andrew Alfonso, he was able to convince them, yeah, maybe you should make it gold. So in the localized version, they made it gold, which is a symbol we associate with something good because like the gold seals, gold stars, things like that. So you know, it's little things like that where we make the adjustments, again, so people can just enjoy the experience without having to feel the challenge is coming to try and figure out how to play the game. The challenge yeah. is getting into the game, but just, you know, the challenges that arise from playing it. Did you think um, with that level of localization to the point where things are changed, colors are changed, even like titles of the main characters are changed, i.e. Mega Man, Rockman. I actually love Rockman and I love rock <laughs> and roll. I think I think that's so much better than Mega Man personally. But do you think we'll reach a point where localization is actually part of the development, like part of, say, pre-alpha, part of concept, where you're looking at the different versions from the get-go? Or do you think it's still going to be something that comes along later on in the game's development cycle? Well, for us at Capcom, I think we've moved toward the former there. We're moving in that direction. One thing we have now is local directors who are usually embedded with the dev team. They sit on the same floor with them. 
they're there at a very early stage. Again, not every title requires that and not every title needs that, but a lot of them have that local director there from the beginning so they can see what the UI designer is doing, what the artists are doing, and they can give that feedback right away. And the rest of my team also is, uh, at least when we handle translations for certain projects internally, those members are seeing the game builds in real time as they're being developed. So they give feedback to the loc director instantaneously. They're like, oh, I saw this. You know, this part is supposed to be, you know, you're trying to make a French cafe here. Our French and Italian localizers say, yeah, but the way it looks, it looks more like an Italian cafe. So, you know, they give that feedback right away. And yeah. I, we've reached a stage where we are working in tandem with the dev teams. Something like Resident Evil is one-to-one almost. And sometimes English even takes primacy over Japanese because a lot of times the story is written in English first using a, a writer from outside of Capcom. And so that has to be actually localized back into Japanese <laughs> for, for them. So the whole game is designed in Japan, the system messages, you know, item explanations, all that stuff. But the main story and whatnot are written in English first. So that offers an interesting case, you know, where it's more we have to parse what is being written in English for the Japanese devs so they can understand if it's good or not because they don't have the cultural understanding to know what's going on. For example, oh, these characters don't call each other by their first names enough. Is that okay? <laughs> <You know? Wow. laughs> right? Just as a you know, a weird example, tiny yeah. other thing. But we're at that stage. We are, for a lot of our titles, we are at that stage where we are giving advice from the beginning and working in tandem. I wouldn't say all of our titles like that, but because more and more Capcom has transitioned. And I think it's almost a 100% transition at this point that we have global simultaneous global release for our titles. So the yeah. only way we're going to accomplish that is by being part of the dev team at very early stages. I think it's excellent that Capcom yeah, that's really cool. has approached it like that. And in terms of localization, I mean, this is quite a hard, hard thing to ask because obviously like Capcom being a Eastern developer based in Japan, you localize into English and then often localize back out to say other European languages, for example. But there's a lot of, even I think it's fantastic that Capcom are doing that, but there is a lot of publishers who don't take localization, I suppose, as seriously. Do you think it does come back to this linear metric of, if we localize in X languages, will we make a profit? Does it always come back to that? That is a good question. I think at the high level, that's very much a conversation that they have. That's very much a conversation I've been a part of, I think, at times. And you need market research to show if that's feasible or not. You know, we're, we're, we primarily make for consoles, also PC as well, but since we are tied to primarily consoles, there has to be enough console penetration in certain markets to even warrant that level of investment in other languages. No one, of course, wants to be the first one to test a new market. <laughs> I guess that's, how, that's just how businesses are. If you're talking from the dev side, a lot of us 
um, the low team will complain that dev the dev team has forgotten about us or whatnot. But when I do compare it to what some other companies do, I realize that they think more about the localization than it seems average companies do. And I'm not sure if that's because being Japanese, they're used to having to put their games into other languages, especially post, you could say, Super Nintendo era, where Japanese sales alone weren't going to cut it anymore. They probably were more cognizant of the fact that they needed to reach newer markets at an earlier stage than European and American developers were. But also because different quirks, like a lot of Japanese players like playing with the subtitles on in Japanese, right? So they have already given consideration fact to how the subtitles will be displayed, which will affect all languages, even including Japanese. So that helps us out tremendously. We don't have to really fight for that. The UI designers, they want to make their job easier. So they approach us from the very beginning. They're like, these are the font sets we have access to, we're thinking of using. Can all your characters, all your diacritical marks, everything, can that be displayed properly with this font set? And we give that feedback, you know, before the game's even got a gray box or anything. So on one hand, they do think of it a lot, but there are certain times where they want to make design choices or narrative choices that I may not personally agree with, but that's what the director or the lead designers want to go with. And we have to figure out the best solution to achieve that that vision. Another thing, too, I think it wasn't just our games, but a lot of Japanese games, especially on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 era, had options where you could change the settings for the language, the audio and display language in the game's options. Whereas a lot of Western titles just tied it to the system setting. So if your system was set to Italian, the game would play in Italian and you couldn't change it unless you went back into your system settings and changed it. Mm. Whereas Japanese games, a lot of them designed it that, no, in the game's menu, you can choose whatever language you want here. It doesn't matter what your system settings are. So there are some times where those little touches come into play. And uh, I feel like they're more forward thinking when it comes to localization. It's interesting with Japanese titles, and I suppose it's the same with anime, but a lot of my friends, I'm the same with certain titles. I will, I want the voiceover to be in Japanese and I'll read the English subtitles. Things, games like Final Fantasy, for example. That's actually what I was wondering. Like when you play Resident Evil and you play as Daniel Cortini, do you play in English? Do you play in Japanese? I play in English because, yeah. like I said, the story is written in English first. So to me, that's oh. the the base language. Monster Hunter as well, I play in English because <laughs> they, they just make up words. In, you know how those monster <laughs> names are. So imagine Japanese, like they just make up words and I don't have the time to parse what they mean. So I'd rather just play it in English, you know. I've only played the demo. I haven't had the chance to play Final Fantasy VII yet. When I played it originally was when I was an exchange student here. I bought a PlayStation and as one of the first games I bought. And my Japanese wasn't that good yet. So I remember my brother emailed me like something. I don't even know if it was Game Facts or like a proto version of Game Facts, but it was kind of a walkthrough of Final Fantasy VII up to a certain point. And so I printed that out 
I don't know, 80, 100 pages out of the school's <laughs> printer. And I brought it back to my dorm room. And uh, yeah, so I was like reading the Japanese and following that English walkthrough so I could play it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, my first experience with it was in Japanese. So not sure if, if I finally get the time to sit down and play Final Fantasy, will I go for it in Japanese or will now, because I work in localization, that part of me is curious. Well, how yeah. did they handle it? You know, if I really had a lot of time, I'd play it in both. But I don't <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't yeah. at the moment because you've yeah. got Moonlight as uh, your Moonlight is Captain Morgan. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine playing like yeah. I guess you must scrutinize, not scrutinize as much, but always curious to see their games from their original core language and also in their localized language. And I suppose you have a unique perspective in that. Yeah. I, I pay attention to things I don't think average players would pay attention to. Just like, you know, animators are paying attention to the idle animation for the playable characters or how many animation loops uh, background NPCs have, you know. So my specialty is with language. So now as a default, I always turn on the subtitles of a game, no matter which language I'm playing in, English or Japanese, just to see what they do some of them are pretty bad because they're pretty hard to read they want to make it as long as possible fill up the whole screen which just goes against the rules of good subtitling right i've seen one game which shall remain nameless but it was an american game and i remembered they spelled okay three different ways there was capital o capital k capital O, lowercase k, and then one version spelled out, O-K-A-Y. So that was a game written and designed in English, and it has an inconsistency like that. (laughs) So so I, I feel pretty good. You know, we have a small team. I think something most people forget about with localizations that whereas the Japanese version of a game or a game natively designed in English has that entire staff to catch spelling errors and things like that. Whereas the French version, there's like a handful of people who see that in its entirety before it goes out. So the fact that if there's just five spelling mistakes, which are our French localizers would hate to have. I'm like, that's pretty impressive that there's only two of you (laughs) and that's all that got through. (laughs) So, you know, localized versions of the games are working at a a numerical disadvantage in terms of the personnel that are on the game and see it as opposed to, you know, the number of native speakers of language working on the Japanese version or English version. But it does sound like Capcom are on the right I like that you're still, it sounds like localization is still becoming, um, coming up earlier and earlier in the product development cycle. I like that too. I like that it's a part of the process instead of like a band-aid at the end. Yeah. And I think it was by design, games are getting bigger, more complicated, more text heavy. Uh, Well, like you said, if you want all languages, all regions to come out at the same time, that just isn't realistic unless you build it into the process earlier. Right. And, you know, the Japanese team wants to have the freedom to tweak the game as much as possible to the very last minute. And it's not just, you know, some some members 
on my team can get a little down on things like that. I said, don't worry. It's not just us. There's artists. They wanted more time with that character model. There's the designers who wanted to put more puzzles in that first level. You know, it's all of us, like we all have to meet a schedule. So it's not like our portion of the game has been singled out, but it can feel that way at times. But I've seen the whole process of games develop from start to finish and no one gets everything they want in the game especially as you know schedules start to reach their their end point and there's only so much you can do with that time it it happens to i guess i would say every every step along the way i think that's yeah. as good as we'll get that's yeah we'll get. <laughs> oh miguel it, it's been so good talking to you honestly it's been a pleasure dude absolute pleasure likewise yeah thank you for this opportunity I, I really appreciate it thank you for your time miguel yeah thank you kaylee that was good. That was fun. That was great. That was good, Kaylee. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It was good. It was really, really good. Uh, favorite part? Oh, God. I already told you my favorite part. My favorite part is the Captain Morgan days. Oh, I love yeah. the Captain Morgan yeah. days. I did. I mean, I, I genuinely do. I loved hearing about the localization process at Capcom and how that is built into development. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. How about you? Yeah, I loved him, Miguel's story. I loved his journey, especially his love for Japan. Uh, yeah. In particular, I also loved his, uh, he was a body double, obviously, in Resident Evil. We all know that now. He's yeah. the uh, cop who dies at the beginning. Well, is reborn, though. He yeah. He gets to be a zombie. I mean, I don't play scary games, so I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, do you know what? I thought it was just great to hear his journey. And I thought it was a good story to listen to if you're ever considering working in different countries. Um, I know a lot of people are put off mm-hmm. by the idea of working in different countries. Um, obviously, Japan could be a very intimidating place to go because of the language barrier. But yeah, Miguel loved it. And uh, yeah, it was fun. he's been a great success there. So, uh, yeah, really happy for him. Yeah. And if you have a guest submission or you just want to send us your favorite Tiger King gif, um, <laughs> you can send us an email at gamedevshow at ptw.com or drop us a line at ptw.com slash the game dev show. We would love to hear from you. We also need to say everything on this podcast, all of our opinions are our own, not necessarily reflective of the companies we work for. I think that's it, Luke. Yeah. Oh, we do have some cool guests coming up. We, we have like Adam Campbell from Azumi. We have David Eckers from CCP. Who else? Who are some of the other highlights? Uh, Alex Joseph from Graffiti yeah. Games. God, yeah, it's just nonstop. Everyone wants to talk about themselves. Um, we're We're grateful for that (laughs) it's fun it's fun getting to tell people's stories yeah i love it i love listening to stories cool well let's end it here gg as always (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah see you later all right bye. bye Game over.